Well, welcome everyone. Tonight we're thinking about the topic grace alone. Um, and I wanted to start by just asking you whether you've ever asked yourself this question, how can I be sure that I'm saved? If you're a Christian here tonight, have you ever asked yourself that question, how can I be sure that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Now I'm guessing you've struggled with that question if you're a Christian tonight because I know how many times I've struggled with that question. It can be easy to doubt whether we're saved. How do we know whether we're saved? And I think these doubts can arise for several different reasons. Sometimes it's because we wonder whether we have enough faith. Am I trusting Jesus enough? Is my confidence really in him or is it in something else? Sometimes we doubt because we are grappling with the idea of God's sovereignty over all things. If God chooses who he'll have mercy on, then how do I know that I'm one of those who he's chosen? And if you've ever grappled with that question. We're also tempted to doubt, I think, when we struggle with sin. If we feel like we're living the same way as those around us, then we may ask ourselves, are we really one of God's holy people? Now, if you ever struggled with assurance, and I imagine all of us have to some degree, then you may have also experienced a lack of joy at times in your salvation. I want you to imagine that you're on a, a flight somewhere and you're sitting next to somebody who is incredibly anxious about being on an aeroplane. And you're actually feeling fine, you've flown many times before and you're feeling nice and confident. The person who's next to you who's feeling anxious, even though they're going to get to the same destination, is not going to have much enjoyment in the flight, are they? I wonder if you feel like that sometimes, that um, you feel anxiety because you don't know whether uh, you're going to get to the destination that, that God has promised. Well, as we turn to our topic tonight, I hope we'll see that one of the keys to um, our lack of assurance is actually God's grace in salvation. When we look at ourselves, we constantly face doubts, don't we? Do I have enough faith? Have I done enough good? Am I living the right way? And even though that kind of self-reflection is often um, useful, what we need to do more is think afresh about God's grace. Now in Acts chapter 20, when um, Paul talks about the gospel in that um, chapter of Acts, he describes it as the gospel of God's grace, the good news of God's grace. I think that's a an amazing way of capturing this, this news. It's news of grace from beginning to end. And tonight uh, we're going to think about that together. It's going to be a bit different to uh, previous weeks because we'll sp be spending all, our, all of our time in one um, passage in the Bible. Then we'll be jumping back to the time of the Reformation, which is what we're thinking about, the 16th century European Reformation, where some of these truths were, were rediscovered. So uh, pick up a Bible with me and um, please do turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And this is where we're going to be setting up camp, setting up camp tonight, Ephesians chapter 2. It's on page 1173 if you've got one of the Bibles on the tables, 1173. Now, before we think about God's grace, it's crucial that we understand what we're like as human beings, as Jack was saying, to have humility about the state of our hearts. Apparently, Einstein once said, I don't know whether it was Einstein or somebody else, that if, if he, he said this, if I only had one hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes defining the problem and only five minutes um, identifying the solution. In other words, we can only be clear on the solution if we know what the problem is. The same is true of salvation. The reformers in the 16th century knew that if we go wrong here on the state of our hearts and what we're like as humans, 
then our entire understanding of grace will be wrong. So that's what, where we're going to start with, our need of grace. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1, where we start with this realistic um, but quite startling picture of what we're like as human beings. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Do you see that Paul brings together here three deadly powers that are at work against the Christian um, or against the person living in the world? Uh, The first is in verse 2, we follow the ways of this world, so the world is at play. Also in verse 2, we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan. And then verse 3, we gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. We are enslaved by these three deadly forces, the world, the devil and the flesh. And in verse 1, Paul summarises the state we're in. He describes us as dead in our transgressions and sins. So it's not just that we're ignorant of God and that we need educating, or that we lack wisdom and need guidance, or that we are simply sick and need healing. It's worse than that. We are morally and spiritually dead. I remember talking to a friend who was studying medicine at Lancaster Uni a few years ago and he was working in the hospital at the time and he'd just seen um, his first dead body. And he was describing to me just how shocking it was to see someone without life. The limbs felt heavy, no responses, an eerie silence. I haven't been in a room to see that but um, he described it to me. And do you see looking at verse 1 that that's how Paul describes human beings. Isn't that a shocking way to describe what we're like without Christ? Dead, spiritually dead. Although we may walk and talk and go about our lives, from the Bible's point of view, we are walking corpses. And therefore, we are all by nature objects of God's wrath. Do you see, it's not just spiritual help that we need, but new birth, resurrection. It's something we can't bring about ourselves. Carl Truman, who's a pastor and uh, seminary tutor in America, puts it like this. He says, dead in trespasses and sins, human beings are as passive as corpses in securing their own salvation from sin. Now, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, there was a lot of discussion about the nature of sin. What is sin? What does it mean to be a sinful um, human being? And a lot of it revolved around the idea of freedom. By nature, are we free as human beings to choose God? That was a key question. Are we free to choose God? Do we have the freedom to turn to God on our own? And the reformers answered those questions with a resounding no. We, we don't have the freedom to do that. Now, in one sense, we are free to do what we want. But by nature, without Jesus, the thing we want to do is to gratify the desires of our sinful flesh. That's what we saw In these verses, we use our freedom to indulge the sinful nature, to do what we want and to gratify our own desires. And we are incapable of turning back to God by ourselves. Now, the reformers were not new in thinking those things. We're reading it here in Ephesians chapter 2. Another um, important person to bear in mind is somebody called Augustine, um, who was around in the 4th century. He was an African bishop 
in a place called Hippo, which is why it's called Augustine of Hippo, if you ever wondered what was going on there. Um, and that's in modern day um, Tunisia. A lot of what he said was repackaged and retaught at the time of the Reformation. And he used a helpful phrase when um, talking about sin. He used the Latin phrase, incavatus in se. Any Latin students? Incavatus in se. Everyone trying to avoid my gaze. Um, it literally means curved in on ourselves, curved in on ourselves. And that's the language he used when he talked about our sin. We do the things that please us rather than God. We, we're curved in on our own desires and our own um, wants and longings, trapped in a death spiral of self-love. And he said that we have no way of freeing ourselves. This is what the reformers taught. They wanted people to see that every part of us is tainted and affected in some way by sin. Our bodies are affected, which is why we become ill and die. Our minds are affected, and so we think evil things. And crucially, our will and desires are affected, which makes us incapable of choosing God on our own. Now, remember the Einstein thing. The reason the reformers wanted to be clear about sin um, was so that they could understand God's grace and understand salvation more clearly. And at the time, the Roman Catholic Church was teaching a different view. In Catholicism, to put it simply, people are not spiritually dead, but spiritually weak. And so rather than needing a, a resurrection, we instead just need assistance, God's assistance. Now, if that is true, then salvation becomes something quite different. It becomes a cooperation between me and God. He does his bit and we do ours. Salvation is a team effort. And I think that's a common view of salvation. Now, I know that probably tonight is going to raise some questions and really happy to, to talk about them um, afterwards. But I think this is a common view of salvation. The idea that God does something and then gives us the freedom to then choose how we're going to respond. Some will freely respond in faith. Others will freely respond in rejection. But in both instances, it's the person, isn't it? It's us who makes the final move. But these verses in Ephesians quite literally put this idea to death. We're not just weak sinners but spiritually dead sinners we are turned in on ourselves unable to turn by nature to God we do not have the freedom to do that without the saving work of a gracious God in Jesus Christ that brings us to our, our next heading the God of grace do you see in verse 4 when we get to verse 4 that Paul doesn't say but we being wise and powerful because of the good that is in us made ourselves alive again. That would be the new individualistic version, which I don't recommend you going out to buy, um, rather than the new international version. It, it would just be, it'd be just as plausible for us to, um, to call a dead person to, to life again off a hospital bed than for us to raise ourselves to spiritual life again. Our salvation is entirely by God, entirely by grace. Have a read with me of verses four to seven. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want you to see firstly the wonderful description of God's character in these verses. Four things that are mentioned about God's character that provide a wonderful picture of who he is. He's the God in verse four, 
um, who has great love for us. So God, again in verse 4, who is rich in mercy, not just merciful, rich in mercy. So God in verse 7, who is gracious and kind. Our salvation has its roots not in us, but in a loving, merciful, gracious, kind God. It is that God who's reversed our situation. He has done something about our desperate state of sin. Our salvation is his work. And do you see in these verses that it all revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ? Just take a moment, I've I've put those verses on your handout. Um, Just take a moment to underline all the, the references to Jesus Christ in these verses. I'll give you a moment to do that. I counted four times, I don't know about you. Um, And it's a theme that we see throughout the New Testament. All the blessings of salvation come to us in Christ. So we are made alive with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. We are seated with Christ. And God has expressed his kindness to us in Christ. Now this is a crucial point that the reformers wanted us to see. When we think of grace, we should not think of a thing or a concept It's not like a giant can of Red Bull that God is pouring from the heavens to give us sort of energy. That's not what what grace is. God's grace is a person. When God acts in grace towards his world, he sends Jesus, the one full of grace and truth. God's gracious dealings with people are all bound up with um, who Jesus is and what he's done. So I find it helpful when singing that song, Grace, 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 to imagine Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus has done all those things because he is the one who's full of grace. So let's look at it a bit more closely at what Jesus has done for us in these verses. Do you see the key contrast Paul makes is between um, death and life? Verse 5, we were made alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. We didn't make ourselves fit for God and then he saved us. We didn't reach out a hand to God and then he decided to reach out a hand to us. No, it was when we were dead, unable to move towards God, that he rescued us and made us alive. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that is key to our spiritual life and resurrection. As Jesus died, he became an object of God's wrath. The anger of God was poured out on him and we can now move from being spiritually dead objects of wrath to spiritually alive servants of God, all through the work of Jesus. Do you see that believers are no longer caught in that spiral of curved in on ourselves, self-love, but we are raised up with Jesus, now free and alive in him. Now this brings us to the high point of Paul's argument in verses six and seven. The present reality in verse six is that we have been spiritually raised with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly realms, we share in his resurrection victory and we enjoy a new spiritual life in him. And the goal of this is verse seven. This verse reminds us, I think, of the God-centered nature of salvation. He's raised us up with Christ, verse seven, in order that in the coming ages, he might show, God might show, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the age to come will be a theatre of God's grace, showing the universe how gracious this God is who would have a people for himself. It will be a display of God's gracious character. In the age to come, when there are millions and millions of people around the throne with Jesus, 
who were dead in sin, now alive in Christ. Countless people who worshipped themselves, who are now worshipping God. We will experience one gigantic display of the undeserved grace of a loving God and all the glory will go to him. Salvation is by God's grace alone from beginning to end. Now where does that lead us um, today? What will it mean to live a life in light of God's grace, to believe um, that these things are true? Well, this brings us to our third point, the life of grace. Now I think that one of the marks of um, the true gospel, to know whether we're believing the true gospel, is to ask ourselves, is pride removed and boasting buried? Is pride removed and boasting buried? And this is what we see in verses 8 and 9 as Paul sort of um, brings to some of the outworking of this gospel of grace. The life of grace is a life free of boasting. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Got a couple of negative statements here to teach us about what salvation is not. It is, it is not, in verse 8, from ourselves. It is the gift of God. And when Paul says in verse 8 that this is not from ourselves, he's talking about the whole package of salvation. It's all from him. And the striking thing to note here is that that includes our faith. Even our faith is a gift given by God. Now, we thought about this a bit last week, but one of the dangers we can fall into is thinking that our faith is a work that we do. It's easy to view faith as a contribution that we make to salvation. God goes part of the way by showing us grace and we go the rest of the way by having faith in Jesus. The grace is God's bit, the faith is our bit. But just think back to the problem of sin again and um, the dead person who we've been thinking about. If you shouted a dead person to wake up, they won't hear you. They don't have the option to respond to your call because they're dead. You can go on shouting all you like, but they won't move an inch. And that's the same for salvation. The view of some Christians is that God gives a general call to mankind and then we have the option of either responding to that call or rejecting that call. There's some power in us in that situation for us to respond. But Ephesians says that we don't have the ability to respond to the call of the gospel unless God first works in us by his grace. He gives faith to us by his Holy Spirit. It is from him. And that means all the glory goes to him. If we think we've offered something to our salvation, then it, then it leaves open a back door for boasting. If faith is a work that we offer, then we have a right to boast before God. But look again at verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this, all of that, is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So faith, instead of being a work that we do, is simply the way we receive the grace of God in Jesus. It's the channel by which we receive Christ, the instrument by which we receive him. And that ability to take hold of Jesus and place our confidence in him is a gift given by a gracious God. Now, let me just anticipate a question that you might be asking at this point. Why me? Why would God show his grace and favour to me? Why would God, if we wind this question out, why would he choose some and not others? Is maybe a question that you're asking. 
Well, one part of my answer is to say, come back to Real Food next year and look at the Book of Romans, and we're going to be uh, answering that question there, but I'm going to give you a bit more than that. Um, from what we've seen in Ephesians, we can say that God shows grace to who he wants to. Remember in Deuteronomy last Sunday, if you were here on Sunday morning, we read that God loves people because he loves them. There is no other reason given for God's love apart from that he freely loves the people that he chooses to love. In other words, salvation is a free act of a loving God, the one who is rich in love, mercy, grace and kindness. Our love always is drawn out by something else, isn't it, in the person or thing that we love, but it's not like that with God. He is free to love and to choose whom he pleases. And the question, the one I, th I find more sort of helpful to think about is why, not why me, but why anyone? Why would God show grace to any of these objects of wrath? Answer, because he's a loving and gracious God who's free to act in whatever way he chooses. Now this doesn't take away our need to respond to the gospel. I think that's really important to say the Bible teaches very clearly that when we hear the gospel, we need to repent and believe. You need to do that tonight if you haven't done that yet. But I think we've seen in Ephesians that anyone who does respond in faith to the gospel, if you've done that tonight, you've been brought to faith by a gracious God. And so when Christians look back on our conversions, and I'm sure you do this as well, we don't thank ourselves and praise ourselves for our cleverness, but we thank God for his grace, don't we? The gospel of grace destroys our boasting, but second, it also leads to a life of good works. Now, when the reformers began to teach God's grace alone, uh, one of the issues that people had with it was the place of good works. They were worried that this teaching about grace would lead to moral laziness. And I think sometimes that's a good mark of whether you're teaching the true gospel is if this question comes up, you know, why would we do anything if we're saved by grace? Have you ever had a conversation with a Muslim friend? Sometimes uh, this question comes up as well in, in conversation with people. They, they can't quite understand why, as a Christian, you would want to do good if God has already shown us grace. As Paul puts it in Romans, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Well, look at verse 10 with me. Look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see here that good works are an essential part of living as Christians? God has recreated us as new people in Christ. And now that we're his people, he has prepared good works for us to do. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. It is the fruit rather than the root of our salvation. I remember um, the quote Elias gave us last week from Martin Luther. Um, the faith that justifies, the faith alone that justifies is never alone because it is always then accompanied by good works. Now looking at verse 10 again, I want you to see how much of a contrast that is with what we saw in verses 1 to 3. The end of verse 10 in the NIV says that God prepared these works in advance for us to do. Um, another way of translating that is to say that these works were prepared by God so that we should walk in them. And the last time we saw that word walk um, was back in verse um, 2. Again it's translated differently but that idea of following the ways of the world is again walking um, in the ways of the world. So we used to walk in our transgression and sin following the ways of the world 
but now by God's immeasurable grace, he has not only saved us, but he has prepared good works for us to walk in so we can now walk in a different way. Our whole desire and will has changed as we saw in Deuteronomy this morning, our, our hearts have been circumcised. We are now able to do good. We, we want to do good. We can now walk in a new way. And even that is a, is a gracious gift and a gracious work of God. Augustine again said that every work in us is performed only by grace. So I hope you begin to see that our entire Christian lives from beginning to end is a work of God's grace to us. As we sang, grace, 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 paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace, 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 clothed me with power to do what is right. Grace, grace, grace will lead me to heaven where I'll see your face and never cease to thank you for your grace. Well, as we finish, let's go back to where we began and think about our assurance as believers. I want to suggest to you that understanding God's grace in salvation is the only way we can have real assurance in the Christian life. Now, if you're back here in, um, for the first talk in this series, I wonder if you remember Martin Luther's crisis of faith. Before he understood the gospel, Luther was constantly struggling to know whether he was saved. He was trapped in this never-ending cycle of desperately trying to do enough good so that he could be justified before God. Remember that, that, that struggle that he had? He knew that his works could never be enough to please a perfect God. Now, some people view um, grace alone as something that, that robs us of our assurance. If it is all by God's grace, then how do I know that I'm saved? If God has chosen some to be saved, then how do I know that I'm one of the chosen? How do I know that God will um, keep me till the end? But let me just turn those questions around um, again. If salvation depended on your work and your effort, then how would you know that you've done enough to be saved? If salvation depended on the level of your faith, how do you know that you have enough of it? If your salvation was something you can contribute to, then what if you stop contributing? And if your um, perseverance depends on you rather than God, how do you know that you'll make it to the end? I know that if salvation was based on me and something that I do, then I would very quickly walk away from Jesus. I would very quickly stop loving him and stop trusting him. But if my salvation is based on the grace and promises of a faithful God, then I can trust him to keep me going. We can trust him to keep us going. Now Martin Luther came to realise this and his turmoil about salvation was overcome by the sweet comfort of God's grace and, and the fact that God was in total control of his salvation. So I want to end with this quote from Luther. It's from his work um, called On the Bondage of the Will. And in this quote, Luther compares the idea that we have freedom to choose God with the truth that salvation is all by God's grace. And I want, to see, I want you to see how this brought him real assurance. Now, it's a lengthy old quote. Uh, stick with me. Um, it's worth reading in full. So let me, let me read this quote um, as we end. These are Luther's words. He says, For my own part, I frankly confess that even if it were possible, I should not wish to have free choice given to me or to have anything left in my own hands by which I might strive towards salvation. For on the one hand, I should be unable to stand firm and keep hold of it, amid so many adversities and perils and so many assaults of demons, seeing that even one demon is mightier than all men and no man at all could be saved. 
And on the other hand, even if there were no perils or adversities or demons, I should nevertheless have to labour under perpetual uncertainty and to fight as one beating the air, since if I lived and worked to eternity, my conscience would never be assured and certain how much it ought to do to satisfy God. For whatever work might be accomplished, there would always remain an anxious doubt whether it pleased God or whether he required something more, as the experience of all self-justifiers proves, and as I myself learned to bitter cost through so many years. But now, since God has taken my salvation out of my hands into his, making it depend on his choice and not mine, and has promised to save me, not by my own work or exertion, but, but by his grace and mercy, I am assured and certain both that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and also that he is too great and powerful for any demons or any adversities to be able to break him or to snatch me from him. No one, he says, shall snatch them out of my hand because my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Luther said, salvation is taken out of his hands, it's taken out of our hands and placed into the hands of God. And we are safe in his gracious and powerful hands. I'm just going to give you a minute just to reflect on what we've been thinking about, to reflect on the assurance that this brings. Maybe jot down any questions that you've got and then I'll pray. Let's pray. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Hallelujah.